Welcome to Nightlight. We've just completed several hours of examining the words righteousness and justice. If you think we exhausted the meaning of those words or that we even came close to fully grasping all that relates to their meaning and their fulfillment, then you misunderstood me. Or, more to the point, I failed to get my point across. Like many other subjects that are bigger than life, justice, righteousness, cannot be fully grasped in this life, no matter how long we examine its many angles. But we have to try. We have to begin at some point, and we also have to finally let it go at some point. Then we erroneously say we have completed our study, which is kind of laughable. No, we really only laid it aside because of a certain degree of mental exhaustion from trying to pick it up. It's so heavy. One of the dangers of teaching is that by trying to reduce a subject down to a form we can successfully examine, we automatically, though accidentally, reduce the subject uh, down to a place of obscurity so that the very truth of the thing we're trying to study is lessened. This is especially true when it comes to the metaphysical realities, the invisible things like love, truth, and justice. But God has created the world in a way that demands that we try to learn. That's the way we're made. We simply have no choice. We must explore what seems ultimately unexplorable. We get our foot wet in a vast ocean. Our wet foot tells us a little bit about the nature of the ocean. But it certainly does not inform us of every aspect of the ocean's elements. We need a guide who knows the ocean. And at first we need a map written by that guide. The map, even when it's perfectly accurate and even when we have a clear understanding of what it's telling us, is still not the same as the voyage out into the ocean. When it comes to justice and injustice, we are forced into deep waters, first within ourselves, then with others, and ultimately with the whole society or societies of the world system around us. We are facing inequities and even cruelties on so many levels they can't be counted. If we try to run around grappling with each issue, we will quickly collapse from the hugeness of the demands this makes on us. We have to turn to the map and see where we are on it, learn from it, and cooperate with only the portion that we have access to. We not only have to learn to navigate our small territory, but we have to be aware that at times seismic upheavals that are far, far away from our little area caused by the release of ages of pent-up pressures explode and the earthquake set off, sets off a tsunami wave that in mere hours reaches our relatively peaceful area. At this point, the whole ocean is in an upheaval that demands all of us to, to respond, no matter how peaceful our little area seems to be. We may never have to face what I just metaphorically described, but all the present indicators point to increased seismic movements and the changes of our staying happily ignorant decrease every day. The metaphor of an unapproaching tidal wave is not hyperbolic. Can we really name any current aspect of human interaction that is not a pressure cooker waiting to burst? How are we to live? Do we anticipate to the potential explosion and, and its fallout, or do we claim to be living in peace when maybe we are just living in denial? We have already stated that we cannot grasp the whole ocean, that the best we can do is try to be faithful in our small part of it. Now, that's very true. Yet, at the same time we're saying that, we are seeking to be faithful in our small part, 
but we are also being trained by the map maker for possible demands on us, which faithfulness in our small area is equipping us for. for. So it's vital that we be faithful in the small things, knowing that we may be called upon then to prove ourselves faithful in the larger things. After studying the Bible for nearly 50 years, I'm slowly coming to the conclusion that I don't know very much and can never know much in this life anyway. I keep returning over and over to statements in Scripture that seem to sum up for me what I am responsible to know, like one of them that seems to come up in my heart so often lately, Micah 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Now, I think I understand now why, after telling me I must do justly and love mercy, that the summation of this verse is that I am to walk humbly with my God. It's because I have no idea fully how to do the first two. How do I do justly? What does it look like to love mercy? I know a tiny bit, but not much, not enough. So the summation, therefore, is that when trying to do what is just and love and show mercy, the only way to do that is to walk humbly with God. So what does that look like? Well, I don't think that one is as difficult to understand as the first two. The first two demand a certain degree of clear thinking definitions and answers, which is what we've been grappling with for the last five or six sessions. But this last one, it doesn't require answers so much as it requires an admission that I don't know how to do the first two without God's help. If I can't act out the first two well, I can at least fall before God in humility and beg for his grace and help to teach me how to be a just and loving person, especially in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So this brings me to a simple conclusion. I can't successfully wrestle with the entire ocean of injustice inequality, unfairness, racial and ethnic hatred, poverty, crooked governments, horrendous evils perpetrated on national and international scales. I can't even address all that is wrong in my own neighborhood. But what I have been given stewardship over is my little portion of life. That's where I'm called to learn to do justly and to love mercy. And because we are all so broken and unable to walk together perfectly, I am called by the map maker to learn what I can from studying the map. Then I must lay aside the map metaphor. In other words, I must stop just reading about places I have never been and I must launch out into the deeper waters around me and actually put my hands onto the task that these troubled waters demand of me. So let's do that now. Let's lay aside my overused ocean metaphor and talk more plainly. I think it is reasonable to say that the result, for me at least so far, is that I have to learn to forgive. And you may immediately resist that. For heaven's sakes, Clay, are you really suggesting after all these years of teaching on forgiveness and talking about forgiveness and doing conferences on forgiveness and helping people work through it that you, you're coming back? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I must learn it over and over and I must learn it on several different increasingly daunting levels. So far, I have not had to face certain aspects of forgiving that others in my acquaintance have. I've only been called upon to help others who have faced things that in my mind were too terrible for anyone to ever have to face. 
I have not had to forgive the Germans for killing most of my family in the Holocaust. I've never had to personally forgive a crooked policeman for fondling my daughter during a traffic stop and then threatening her if she told anyone. I've not buried my wife and learned that her life could have been saved except for an insurance glitch that tied the doctor's hands. I don't know what it's like to forgive a business partner for stealing from me and ruining my reputation while financially crippling me and then to have to repeat my struggle to forgive every month because every month I have to write the check that goes to pay back the loan I was forced to take out to save my freedom while I had to move my family into an apartment too small for them all to to fit into. I thankfully don't know firsthand what it's like to have to rock and try to comfort my little boy every night to calm him from his repeated nightmares after he was grabbed on the way home from school by a pedophile rapist. These are just examples of struggles I have had to help others face. There are many evils I have never had to face personally and pray that I never will. But I have had my share of struggles, as you have, too. I'm only responsible for the part I truly live in day by day. Every day I'm made aware that I do not know what is, what so many others are carrying secretly. I, I, I saw a sign that really almost moved me to tears. It said, be kind to everyone. You don't know what load they are carrying. There's a beginning of wisdom in facing that which we don't know and greater wisdom in coming to acknowledge that we don't know and even greater wisdom in acknowledging that we now know that we don't know. It's only when we get to this point that we can begin to cry out in humility to God to help us learn what we need to know in order to righteously deal with our little part of the ocean. He will not require of me to answer for evils I can't understand, much less correct. But he will require of me to answer for why I have not forgiven those in my immediate sphere. In the line of work that I do, where it is a part of my responsibility as a watchman on the walls to keep my eyes on the big picture I can easily get so caught up in describing the ocean to return momentarily to my overused ocean metaphor that I can stumble and fall on my face and if I'm not careful I can drown in an inch of water at my feet. Well, I fail to deal with the larger issues because I'm allowing myself to be hamstrung by the small ones. Do I love those in my my world? Do I love the unlovable? Do I love those who are my enemies? That includes political enemies who I may not know personally, but who are in my face every day through headlines and TV screens. Maybe they are the most obvious ones in greatest need of my care and, and mercy. But do I, do I let myself go there? I could be like a radar operator, so busy studying the screen and warning the army out there of incoming attacks that I fail to notice the enemy that has broken in on my own home and is at the very moment I'm sounding my warning to others about to cut my throat. Mary and I have worked with people of many walks of life for well over 30 years, struggling with marriages and children and families, and bosses, and enemies, and sexuality, and addictions, and broken church relationships. And no matter how complicated these relatively small wars may be, it is still always coming back over and over to the basic message we often ignore because we think we know it already so well. We must forgive, or we will not be forgiven This is both simple and profound. It is as easy as choosing to obey God and as difficult. It is ultimately what this life is all about and nothing more. Learning to forgive is learning to love. Learning to forgive is learning to live. Learning to forgive is training in righteousness. It is preparation for the real event ahead, which is the life to come. 
So we must wrestle with the issue of forgiving over and over. And with every wrestling, we deepen in our understanding and become more like our master. And we must do it on a greater and deeper scale because it is as complicated as life itself. Dr. Everett Worthington is professor of psychology at Virginia Commonwealth University. He's also a chief researcher with the Fetzer Network, an organization which, among other things, coordinates serious scientific research in how to deal with unforgiveness in every walk of life, from marriage to national and international issues, racial conflicts, and even genocide. His book, Just Forgiveness, landed on my desk for a review from the publisher uh, at about the same time I was beginning to struggle with the reality that I had many deeper, more demanding issues regarding forgiveness, uh, which I had never personally had to experience yet. Dr. Dr. Worthington says concerning this book, quote, People decide how they intend to act toward an offender, which I call decisional forgiveness. They might do so and still be angry, still be resentful, and not fully at peace emotionally. That suggests that there is actually a second type of forgiveness beyond the decision to forgive. That's emotional forgiveness. I believe that Jesus calls us to decisional forgiveness. He said that if we do not make the decision to forgive those who have harmed us, God will not forgive us. That seems like a hard word. Some people try to include emotional forgiveness within decisional forgiveness. But that becomes almost impossibly hard. If we had to be completely emotionally at peace before our sins were forgiven, we would all be in terrible trouble. God certainly desires that we experience complete emotional forgiveness. And I think it is possible, usually, to move in that direction and often to achieve it. But God does not require immediate emotional forgiveness. He does require immediate decisional forgiveness. End quote. I want to take some time together with you here to examine the difference between emotional forgiveness, which may not come easily or in some cases ever in this life, and compare that with decisional forgiveness, which is instant and even held out in front of us before the evil is even perpetrated against us. Emotional forgiveness is a process. Decisional forgiveness is, as the term implies, a decision of the will. And because it is a decision, it happens the instant you decide to choose it. Because it is a decision, it is not based on your feelings or on the nature of the sin you're forgiving. But it is dependent on whether you and I have made Jesus the Lord over our lives. The question he asks still rings and should always ring in our ears. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Luke six forty six. The struggle inside us to forgive tells us two vitally important things about God. First, since we are created in his image and likeness, He is a God of justice who hates evil because we hate evil and long for justice. The hatred we feel for the evil that has been committed says that God who created us is a God who demands fair play, careful right treatment of others, and who will not allow wrong to go uncorrected. But it equally says that he will not allow the wronged party to perpetrate more wrong in response as in the form of a revenge. He expects love, not revenge. 
we see that going on inside of us too because we are made in his image. We not only long for justice and demand it, but we also long for mercy. We may have to dig deep for it, but within us there's a longing for both justice and mercy. Not only mercy received, by, uh, and, but, but mercy also given. These two forces inside us, inseparable yet seemingly conflicting realities, tell us about ourselves and about the God we worship. And this brings us into direct contact with the full demands of love and justice. How do we satisfy both positions? When evil has been perpetrated, how do we maintain a just stance against the evil and not sin against the victims by failing to seek retribution? How do we, how do we proclaim the necessity of forgiveness without sinning against justice? How do we seek retribution and still satisfy the demands of love? Well, let's talk a minute about love and retribution. This struggle in us makes us understandably uh, come to some assumptions. One assumption is that there can be no reconciliation between love on the one hand and just retribution on the other. They, They seem unreconcilable. The idea that love lets people off who do wrong and just retribution disregards love and exacts a measured punishment for sins. The idea of retribution in the Bible would require an entire study on its own, by the way, one far too large to get into here. So for now, let's let's just point out two large examples to get a vitally important point across about the the character of God. In Job, we see God rebuking Job's friends for accusing Job of secret sin. They based their accusation on the assumption that was commonly held that when bad things happen to people, it's obviously because they sinned and therefore they deserve their bad experience as just retribution. God says that these men who said this about him, quote, have not spoken what is right about me. When the same God stepped into humanity in the form of Jesus, and he encountered a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him if the man was born blind because he had sinned, or whether it was because of his parents' sins, Jesus replied, neither. Then he says, as he heals the man, let the works of God be manifest for and in him. Evidently, the works of God are found in the healing, the restoring, the alleviation of suffering, not in the blindness. And this act of love, the whole idea of retributive justice, retributive justice, as cold, calculating punishment, is being totally refuted once and for all by the revelation of both Job and the revelation of the New Testament. But but what about, I understand, I understand, there are lots of questions like that. There are many verses in the Hebrew Scriptures that seem to totally affirm the doctrine of retribution as punishment, and of a dichotomy between love and punishment. It seems not only understandable, but irrefutable that the assumption made by Job's friends and by the disciples about the blind man are based in Scripture. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Deuteronomy 32-35. David certainly believed in vengeful retribution so much so that he wrote psalms expressing his thirst for it. I bet none of us have this verse hanging over our fireplace on a, you know, a beautiful plaque. I hope we don't. Psalm 58 says, Break their teeth, O God, in their mouth. Let them melt away as evaporating waters. Let them be cut in pieces and dissolved like a melting snail. May they shrivel in the sun like an untimely birthed dead fetus. 
Psalm 137, verse 8 and 9 is another recompense Bible verse you probably don't want decorating your wall or on your t-shirt. Quote, remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, for they said, raise Jerusalem to the ground as it was being destroyed by Babylon. O Babylon, who will one day receive the recompense for what you've done to us? Happy shall he be that takes and dashes your little ones against the stones. There may be no more terrible mental suffering in all human experience than when a parent witnesses the murder of their child. By the way, considering God the Father at the cross, keep that thought in mind. The cause of this prayer for vengeance among the Jews in exile in Babylon was the memory of just such evil they had committed against them by the Babylonians. This prayer is not doctrine, thank God. It's not the heart of God for our enemies. But it is certainly humanly understandable by any of us. Isn't that true? We would have to be dead if... That was not true. There was a group of women refugees in a certain part of the United States several years ago who were all from the same third world country and from the same region. They were also all blind. Another thing they had in common besides being blind and from the same area was that there was nothing medically wrong with either their eyes or their optical region of the brain. In other words, there was no physical reason for their blindness. But they were absolutely, certifiably blind. Their caregivers finally learned that the most uniting shared experience of these women was that they had all witnessed the torture and murder of their children and had somehow corporately agreed in some unspoken, mysterious place of shared agony to just stop beholding this world at all. Who of us can blame anyone for crying out in the face of such horrendous evil? When you or I hear about such things, is it not merely human to want to lash out against the perpetrators? Yes, it is. In fact, if we're not enraged at such evil, we are not being fully human ourselves. Jesus said concerning those who hurt little ones, quote, it would be better for them to have a stone tied around their necks and to be thrown and drowned into the sea. Matthew 18, 6, Luke 17, 2. The rage against horrendous evil is a godly thing. Make no mistake about that. The absence of such rage is an unhuman thing. And yet the worst travesty of justice in the history of man was when God allowed men to vent our worst and most savage cruelties against himself on the path to and culminating upon the cross. And his response was to pray that they be forgiven because they did not know what they were doing. And the problem with this that I just quoted is we have heard it so often and our familiarity with it has become so terribly softened that its effect on us has lost any power. This story should shock us. It should shake us deeply and then challenge us to cry out to God. I'm talking about the story of the cross, not the story of the blind women, though they should shock us too. But the story of the cross doesn't shock us anymore because it's so familiar to us. We think we know. It's when we think we know because something is familiar that we are at our most ignorant. This story should shock us and should shake us deeply and then challenge us to cry out to God to save us, not from a possible confrontation with similar evil, but to save us from our own potential evil responses. But where is the conflict that it should arise within us? 
We do not know anything about this kind of evil firsthand, and we do not know how to respond to evil in this way. But we must learn, whether we ever are tested fully by it or not, we must deal with our own hearts about this struggle. And if we are fully awake, we will admit that we are aware of the increasing possibility of our having to come face to face with similar injustices and cruelties and sufferings. And you do not prepare yourself to face such things by stealing yourself or making yourself strong or making yourself indifferent or impervious to pain. That's None of that works. If if such evil is not set against us, then what may be far worse, it could be set against our loved ones. Sufferers will often report that they found their own suffering far easier to bear than to see the suffering of their loved ones. You can't steel yourself against that. Something else has to happen in us that only grace can produce and will produce especially if we cry out for it. The Western church is very weak because it is very strong. What do I mean by that? Well, our Hebrew mentor and close friend Dwight Pryor told us years ago of his first encounter with Richard Wormbrand, the famous founder of the Voice of the Martyrs. When Voice of the Martyrs uh, held their first convention in Oklahoma many years ago, Dwight attended and he said that he mentioned to several Christian friends that he was going to this conference and they asked him what the conference was about. He explained that it was a gathering of believers from various parts of the third world where Christians were under terrible persecution. The common response he got from everyone he encountered was something like, oh man, what a bummer. That would be so depressing to hear all those terrible stories about persecution. What do you want to go to that for? But when he arrived, he found himself among over a thousand believers and the only sad faces in the place seemed only to belong to himself and his friend who had come with him. The rest of the place was jubilant. The stories, one after the other, revealed a level of faith rooted not in American or Western pseudo-Christian self-centeredness, but a purified faith that had come through the fire and emerged as gold. There is a great liberating power that comes when we are finally set free of ourselves and come to love God and others instead of focusing always and only on, quote, getting our own needs met as we tend to say so often in American church and Western church. I'm not here referring to some Christianized form of Buddhism where we just deny our own existence and embrace suffering as the ultimate reality. Not at all. We are sick because we have not yet taken the commandments of Jesus seriously. We think we can just, quote, get saved by believing the right things Then leave off obeying Jesus as if the only thing Jesus came to do was to die for us, to forgive us of our sins so he can take us away to heaven when we die. Now thank God he did die and take away our sins and we will go to heaven when we die. But his place and intention for us to do just that, take away our sins, was to replace our sinful behavior with a godly Christ-like character so that through us Jesus might manifest his power to save the entire earth and fill it with his glory. So Paul says in Romans 5 and James says in James chapter 1 that we should learn to rejoice in tribulation knowing that the trying of our faith develops hope in us and hope develops character. And this character produces more hope. The goal is not heaven. The goal is Christ-likeness. Now, how does hope and character enhance one another? How does facing and going through crises after crises develop hope in us? How does hope, such hope, 
which is a total confidence in the good of the future, help form Christ-likeness in us by making us have to live out in reality what we have only affirmed as a mere belief. Tribulation stretches us and forces us to have to endure. This enduring develops in us an ever-increasing capacity to stand up under pressure. That's hupomeno in Greek, to stand up under. This staying steady is the very meaning of the biblical meaning of the word faith. It is this keeping steady under pressure, imuna in Hebrew, that is the kind of faith that eventually wears out its enemies. The word is seen in the story of Exodus 17 where Aaron and Hur held up Moses' arms as the battle with the Amalekites raged down below. As long as Moses' hands remained raised, the battle went well. They held Moses' hands steadily. Imunah is the word steady. This is the great picture in this story of how our faithfulness, our keeping at it even under pressure, causes a release of power for us against our enemies. Hands held up under pressure doesn't sound or feel or appear very glamorous or glorious, but that's the point. Forget the glamour and the glory. When there is no glamour or glory, simply staying your course and putting one foot in front of the other in a long obedience in the same direction, even when you can't feel anything but bad, and remaining faithful, that's the victory that First John 5, 4 says overcomes the world. And this kind of enduring faithfulness in the moment-by-moment present pressures produces a confidence in us that becomes unfailing and a dependence on the promises of God that always results in the glorious final outcome no matter how long the struggle takes. This is the biblical meaning of the word hope. Not as we tend to use it, I hope it all is going to work out. There's no biblical word for hope in that sense. No, biblical hope is confidence in God's character which rests in his goodness and integrity and so that forms in us a like character of goodness and integrity. We are becoming Christ-like under that pressure. That means our enduring one foot in front of the other faithfulness to God eventually trains us to always, in the face of whatever comes, remain steady in union with him. And if we fall, we fall towards Jesus and we get up and go again. Paul says it is having this hope that forms our character. And this kind of character will be able to obey the commands of Jesus to forgive even our enemies because we come to actually be living in the reality that we claim to believe. We come to really really think in terms that this earthly system is not the final word on anything. And so we don't, we don't wallow in self-pity or rage or demand vengeance or immediate justice on our terms because we live in the light of eternal reality. We, we say we do. Do we really? That's the question, and that question is only revealed by how we function under pressure. We have to really live out what we say we believe, and this forms us into people of character or Christian little Christs. We are not playing a nine-inning game. We play till we win. We bat till we hit a home run. So we have hope that endures and character that manifests love in the face of evil. We do not love evil, but we love those who are caught by evil and are functioning evilly. We love the victims and we also love the victimizers. This is a necessary process and there is no other way around it. When Paul, as well as James, tells us to rejoice in our tribulations, that is not some weird, otherworldly religious jargon or some super spirituality that's out of our reach and only 
in the reach of super apostles. No, it makes perfect sense once we understand the big picture that they understood. This world is not about this world. We are in training for rulership in the world to come. And what is God most concerned that we learn to be faithful rulers? To love. To do what is just and right. To be like Him. And the only way that can happen is for us to be given on-the-job training in love and justice until we get it that in God's economy there's no dichotomy between love and justice. Our justice will be loving, our love will be just, and the world, uh, or the, the, the word that sums up this training is forgiveness. I started to say the world that we live in trains us by making us have to function in forgiveness. Both statements are true. I want to quote Dr. Worthington again from his book, Just Forgiveness, with regard to this truth, where he says, quote, The tension between justice and forgiveness raises profound and troubling questions. In some ways, these questions pose the choice between love and power. An inscription found in the Libyan desert reads, quote, I the captain of a legion of Rome, serving in the desert of Libya, have learned and considered this truth. There are in life only two things to be sought for, love and power, and no one has both. Yet with Christ, there is both. Dr. Worthington goes on to say, the crucifix and the empty cross In humility, perhaps some of the tensions between love and power, forgiveness and justice can be answered. In quote, there is a place where love and power do meet and are manifested fully. That's the cross. There is only one place in the universe where this struggle is met and satisfied and resolved. It's in the cross. The Roman system celebrated what it mistakenly thought was its grand system of justice. This monstrous beast of a nation sprawling with its claws over the whole earth manifested injustices on the grandest and most inhumane forms. Yet, bad as it was, it was better than the uncontained paganism that had preceded it. And it was a tool in the guiding hand of divine providence to eventually provide enough civilization so that the four corners of the world would be prepared for the spreading of the gospel. Every Roman image of Caesar was flanked by the image of the goddess Justitia. The grand irony would be that through the cruelty of Roman justice, the true ruler of the world would be crucified on a Roman cross and by that action would bring down Roman false justice by manifesting a justice that was rooted in love. Now when it comes to the necessity of humility as the necessary ingredient for us to be able to grasp this message, that opens up a whole other realm that will take some time to unpack. In the closing minutes that we have, I want to try to just get it across in a a way that uh, maybe will help us prepare ourselves for a deeper study of it in uh, sessions to come. Why is humility necessary for us to bring together love and justice in the same essence? Uh, and I would say it's, I guess the, the only way I could say it is to try to give maybe my own personal view of it. Subjective as that may seem, I hope it will make some sense to you. We talked a few moments ago about the necessity of of being faithful for the long haul. Uh, Faith and hope are related in that hope is a guaranteed future and faith, which has not seen the fulfillment of that hope yet, 
continues to act in confidence that that hope will be fulfilled because God is faithful. And so uh, even if one is stumbling with the worst kinds of uh, sinful behaviors and broken areas of character, uh, if their eyes are on Jesus and they are trusting him, he who has begun a good work in them will complete it. Uh, it takes it takes hope to have the production of that kind of character in our lives. And it takes humility for those of us who have been hurt or disappointed or injured by people to believe that they can be forgiven and more than forgiven, they can be uh, transformed into their true self in Christ. Uh, Humility has a lot of other elements to it, of course, than that. But uh, let me try to illustrate this maybe more clearly in in just some personal experience. When I deal with people who are particularly gripped by what, what normal people would call heinous, grievous sins, uh, I'm not able to do that because I'm more spiritual than anybody or have more insights than anybody. Uh, if anything, it's just the opposite. I'm able to meet certain people with certain struggles because I remember where I've come from. Uh, you know, there's a there's a line in Lord of the Rings that always grips me where Sam is talking to Frodo about Gollum and he says at one point, I wonder if Gollum thinks he's the hero of this story or he's the villain. And, uh, you know, there is, in many of us, maybe not all of us, but in many of us, there's a tendency to think uh, of our life as a story. And we fantasize to some degree uh, of ourselves as the hero or heroine of the story. Uh, But when all the facts come in, none of us are heroes and none of us are totally villains. There's that difficult mixture of what it is to be to be human in our present condition. It's not perfected hum- humanity, but it's broken humanity. In, in, in my early days, I can tell you that I had very little character. I had many gifts. I was very gifted. It's very dangerous to be gifted without character. It's even more dangerous to be in a system of culture where they disregard your character as long as your gifts can serve their purpose. And so for the first uh, 30 years of my life, I suffered under the weight of great gifts and no character, almost no character. Uh, Character was developed as I walked with the Lord and stumbled my way through my own heartaches and brokennesses and failures and uh, embarrassments, uh, trusting the Lord Jesus Christ to do in me what I couldn't do for myself. I got a letter a few years ago from an acquaintance. He was at one time a very close person in my life. And the letter brought tears to my eyes because it said, in in essence, I just want to thank you for never giving up. I know how hard it was for you at times. And most of the people around me who walked with the Lord back in the days when we knew each other more closely have turned away and have fallen to the wayside. And I want to thank you because whenever I'm tempted to give up, I think of you, and I don't give up. Now, anybody reading that might think, well, that's a great accolade. But it wasn't really meant to be an accolade. What he was saying to me, and I knew what he was saying, and I read between the lines, although he didn't have to write it covertly. He and I could be honest with each other. He knew my whole black 
struggle. But what he was saying to me was not, you're my hero because when I really am tempted to give up, I think of you and I I, I get my second wind and keep moving because you're, you inspire me. That's not what he was saying. What he was saying was more important than that. What he was saying was, I know how broken you were and how what a mixture you were and how much shame you hid in, in your uh, early days. And when I'm tempted to give up, I remember how God brought you through and if his mercy and grace can bring you through and cause you to become victorious over the things in your life that were so opposite to your testimony, then I know there's there's reason for me to keep pressing forward. That's that's a good bit different than saying, you're my hero, you're my example, uh, you give me inspiration. And actually, because it's not a hero worship letter, on the contrary, it is a an honest man-to-man sharing of our worst failures and the, that God's grace was so clearly evident in bringing both he and I through our various different but, but very uh, similar broken, broken areas. Uh, there was reality in it and, uh, and there was humility in him giving me the benefit of the doubt in those days. Not, not real, benefit of the doubt is not the right term. Uh, he was trusting me that as I trusted Jesus, Jesus would bring me through to integrity and godly character. I was doing the same thing for him. I was believing the same thing for him. Both of us knew our worst failures. Both of us knew our lowest behaviors. And uh, so the humility that was necessary to keep believing in forgiveness, not only giving forgiveness to others, but then being able to receive that forgiveness for ourselves, worked in us a far greater weight of glory uh, as we looked not at the things which were seen, but the things which were unseen. The things which were seen were temporary. The things that were unseen were eternal and uh, I still have that letter. I go back and review it now and then uh, for lots of reasons. There are people that I'm sitting and speaking with uh, telling me their, their stories and they're telling me the terrible suffering that they've been through and they tell me about some certain person who is the cause of their suffering and I'm helping them to work through the, the pain of that, and I'm helping them forgive. Well, when I'm doing that, there's always, almost always, somewhere in the back of my mind, sometimes in the front of my mind, the question, and the question is this, I wonder where people of my past might be today and are they sitting with a counselor or a pastor or a therapist or some friend and they're telling their story of heartache and their story of having been badly damaged and injured by the person who uh, is responsible in their eyes for their suffering and the person they're talking about is me. Like Gollum, am I the hero in this story or am I the villain? And the fact is, it depends on who's telling the story and what story they're telling. Sometimes, uh, see, there are people who, th- they'll tell you that I am, I am the, the greatest blessing in their life and that I saved their marriage or I saved their family or I saved them in some form. And you know, that may be true, uh, thanks to the grace of God and the glory, uh, the glory goes to God alone. But there are other people who would readily tell you that I was the most painful and damaging person that ever came across their path. I don't know if they have forgiven me or not because there are so many that might fit that description 
that I have not got the capacity or the wherewithal to find them all and uh, try to make amends. I've tried to make amends everywhere it was humanly possible. I've made the phone calls and written the letters and even gone to have face-to-face encounters where it was wise. It's not always wise to go and try to meet face-to-face with people who may have ought against you. Sometimes it's a, a an unnecessary opening of old wounds. And it takes discretion and wisdom and counsel to know how to work through those questions. But I'm saying all that to say this. When it comes to dealing with horrendous evil, and I was I was not the perpetrator of life-destroying events, but I was the perpetrator of of sins in the lives of others that if given freedom to keep growing could certainly result in life-destroying sins. I don't know if I'm saying that clearly. I want to be quite clear and honest about it. I, I never killed anybody. I never caused anybody to be killed. When I talk about horrendous evil, normally I, I use that term usually in reference to genocide or homicide or uh, some form of killing or uh, uh, so forth. But the wages of sin is death. All sin produces death. So though I'm not guilty of, quote, horrendous evil on that level, any evil perpetrated by selfishness and sinful uh, uh, behavior results in some form of death, and that's horrendous enough. And uh, if I try to find peace in my ability to make amends on the human level, I would collapse under the weight of my of my past. I, there, there is no way for that to happen. Uh, my hope is only in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ shed on the cross. That's my only hope. That's my only place of safety. It's my only place of healing. It's the only place where the injustices I am responsible for can ever be put right. And this is why the Lord Jesus is so absolutely, irrefutably, uncompromisingly clear that if you do not forgive those who have sinned against you, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. I am the man who has been forgiven uh, millions. For me to refuse to forgive anyone else uh, is un, is unforgivable. See, that's the, there's your unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is to refuse to forgive. I can decide to forgive out of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, and then in that position of right relation to God, I can then begin to work toward emotionally being able to forgive. That same thing is true with receiving forgiveness. I can receive forgiveness out of emotional, out of a decision to believe God. There's, there's biblical hope. I choose to believe his promise and his word that when I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. See, he's faithful and just to forgive me of my sins. Justice is in forgiveness. Uh, and uh, I can then begin to work on the emotional reception of forgiveness. There's things that I still remember that make make my eyes wet with grief. Uh, and I turn those moments into intercessory prayer for those that I've injured. Uh, some whose names I don't even know. Uh, so I hope that might give some clarity of how this works now, on a larger scale, which I can't address right now, how do we deal with horrendous evil? Evils like Rwanda, evils like the Holocaust, evils like racism and the uh, the, the mistreatment uh, and murder of a person by authority figures. Uh, 
out of sheer racial hatred, things of that nature, and other examples we could list. Uh, we will have to delve into those questions in a separate hour together. But in closing right now, I want to ask us to pray that the Holy Spirit would come and and take us further up and further in to the understanding of forgiveness, both giving and receiving forgiveness, and how that uh, is the healing of the world, not just the healing of our world, but the healing of the world. Father, I pray in the closing moments of this time together that your Holy Spirit will take us deeper, far deeper than we've ever gone before into understanding the necessity of a just forgiveness, a forgiveness that is rooted not in religious placation of evil, but in the true justice and mercy manifested only in one place, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom I am crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. Thank you for that, for that answered prayer, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.